Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy. It was a pleasure to host an evening with Robert Rinder and a privilege to play a small part in supporting Jewish Blind and Disabled charity at London's JW3. And now you're part of a night of great warmth, entertainment and fun with an intimate audience of the charity's supporters. Well, it's not too late to make a donation. On the night, we raised a phenomenal £95,000 in the room. So let Johnny Gould's Jewish State help it into six figures. Donate now at Jewish Blind and Disabled's website, jbd.org slash donate. And we entered the stage left and right in a style Rob and his Strictly partner, Oksana Platero, would have been proud of. Listen now to Robert Rinder. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you. Superbly choreographed already. Five points from me. You're very, yeah. We, we've so ten it. from Len. That was very, very good. Next year is for Seven. <laughs> it's just a pleasure to be here on the stage at JW3 as always. And to see such a lovely crowd. So much better than last week's. Yeah. <laughs> um, 2014 is mm. so recent. I mean, this is like an overnight story. It is an overnight story. But before we begin, I, I first want to say to you, uh, it's such a, a gift to be here. Um, you know, all of the ridiculous privileges that you get by being um, on, on the telly, the most special one, the, the one that really strikes... I'm going to use a lot of Yiddish tonight, and I hope you'll forgive me. I'm obsessed with it. Um, uh, I'm with you. I'll translate, but you, 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 you get the idea. Um, you, of all of the sort of magic that you can bring, um, the most important one is the, the Yiddish word, but the sense of tzedakah and being amongst this family. And I haven't had the chance to go around every table, but this is the first live event for JBD in a number of, of years. And it's uniquely special, firstly because we have that capacity to be alongside each other and the thirst for that, you can feel it in the room. But above all else, um, despite all of the gifts of charity that uh, I get to work alongside, this perhaps is the most special one and the most important one to me. This is personal. Um, this is Meshbucha, it's family. And um, JBD is a family. And as I'll come on to talk about and talk to later, it's the type of outward-facing charity that does more than the sum of its parts. Uh, we will perhaps embark on some serious things and talk about the growth of anti-Semitism. It's an odd segue, but it's an interesting place to start and to think uh, about the world. And um, one of the things that we were talking about earlier is how we have really quality, powerful, simchatastic, joyous examples <laughs> of who we are as a people that it's not just the enduring story of Oive, but who we can, who we are at our very best as a community. And for that, we need the most articulate and quality examples imaginable and available to us. And for me, I've lived it. It's part of the lived experience of my family and JBD is my number one example when I tell the world who we are as a community and as a people. So the gift of being here is personal, matters to me. And for each and every one of you out there, in that moment, difficult though it may be when you're countering anti-Semitism, rather than responding with logic, people aren't listening to the logical part of their brain, you do just as well to deploy the facts and then to say, I'd just like to tell you to show who we are as a community at our best, and then send them the JBD link. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's nice. 
And you've all got your pens there. Write down a new Yiddish word, simchatastic. I know, what a joke. You heard it first. I, I mean, I like Meshigana and Sir Drake better. I mean, you say it's... Uh, <laughs> I'll try not to be so drained. No, it's a fascinating thing. Don't you think? It's a, a fascinating... You know, I es- love Yiddish. Eskimos have a thousand different words for snow, but what does it say about us uh, as a people that we have that many words to describe the, the sort of uh, uh, psychotic state of someone's <laughs> mind and their mental neuroses? If somebody can explain to me the difference between a machine and a sedrate, I'll let you know. Or years ago when I used to be in court, especially in the youth court, uh, and um, I, I take any work, and you'd really want to stand up and say to a judge, look, I know he burnt his school down. Uh, I know he's, had a bad, he's not a bad boy, he's just a lobbus. He's a lobbus. You know I mean? <laughs> so, and, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it is sort of thing. <laughs> or the kind of Jewish algebra that you get. You know, this is... This wasn't just, uh, this is part of the Ruach, part of the spirit and the notion of who I am now. It's uh, woven itself into the tapestry and cloaked itself because of how that's enveloped around my family and especially my dad. But for other Jewish charities, there is a Jewish algebra, which is for um, every one mitzvah you do, you um, create two broigases, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the Eskimos don't have a word for tzakrochen. They don't. They might uh, yeah, it, it's, um, it, it did start in 2014. Yeah. And actually, as a segue to that, and I, I didn't apply to be on television. More about that in a second. I should tell you just a, something about that Jewish algebra. Yes. By 2017, you know, we had about seven more. I mean, about 1.2 million people watch the show every day. And there was a woman that came into the back of the court. Now, somebody will no doubt ask whether the cases are real, having seen some of them and how machine yes. they are. But they really are. And uh, in the morning, we have four cases, and in the afternoon, we have four. And um, it's a morning session, and I introduce uh, what the cases are going to be and ensure that I make a point of saying everybody should be treated with dignity. And at the end of the court session, I'll come out and answer any questions that people have. There's a woman sitting in the back of the court, and um, what's her best Jewish... She was forbidden. You know what I mean? Mm. She'd, uh, if she'd been at the Last Supper, she'd have asked for luckers. You know what I mean? And she was, yeah. Right, if she'd seen Jesus walk on water, she'd have said, you see, see that? You see what my son can do? Let me do. She hadn't moved her face, and that wasn't just because she was from Northwest London. She wasn't, you know. Um, sat there. And of course, you know, some of the cases are funny. You're getting the energy from um, the audience reaction. Also, what they do can really inform um, some of the judgments from time to time. Nothing, nothing. But I could tell, I could tell she had a face. I could tell straight yeah. away. She was Forbidden Monthly. She was the Hanukkah edition of Forbidden. Oh. At the end of the uh, morning session, I went over, as I always do. Thank you, everybody, for coming. It's two and a half years' wait to get a ticket. So this wasn't, you know, because she'd found her way into my um, sister-in-law's boutique, as some people do, pretended they wanted to buy a dress to get my phone number to see whether I'd do their charity. <laughs> she had waited for a ticket and sat at the back. She does this to me. She goes... And of course, she looks like my bubba, so immediately it triggers your derech You know, she, my bubba will find out if I ignore this woman. So I immediately walk over to her. <laughs> yes, madam, how can I help you? She said, well, you can do UJA, but you can't do wheat, sir. <laughs> She'd sat there all morning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so 2014. Anyway. So, yeah, so, so, so 2014. Yeah. Um, and it has been, it's, it's an amazing story, because actually you were at the time, a practicing barrister. By the way, before we go on to that, 
Are they binding the judgments that you make on the telly? They are, they are. So they are uh, de facto arbitration. So how they, if they're lawyers in the room, um, it's not quite governed by the Arbitration Act, but much in the way that you can determine contractually to have, for instance, the Beth Din make a yes. commercial decision on your behalf. Uh, that's Jewish Sharia. Jew <laughs> that's one way of putting it. <laughs> Don't say that. I'm not sure what the equivalent of a Jewish fatwa is, but trust me, they will come after your family and remove your... They'll rearrange your furniture. I don't want to... <laughs> um, yes, that's the sort of legal basis. Um, but I didn't apply to be um, on, on television. It was mm. a series of random events. I was doing um, what you might least describe as international law at the time. So I started doing crime um, and did uh, murder cases and so on and so forth, gang cases in Birmingham representing... Um, usually people from the most challenged communities within our country, um, and then wrote a book on money laundering. Um, she said somebody uh, earlier, you know, I'm sure nobody's committed a crime, so I wouldn't be so sure. Do you ask This would be quite handy to read. I uh, know. Well, it's not a how-to, Johnny. <laughs> right. Oh. Guy. Although, when you, I remember the publisher saying, who would you like to dedicate it to? And I you know, got to the end of this legal book. I said, tell people not to operate heavy machinery when reading it. Um, <laughs> anyway, long and short of it, I ended up in the, doing a case in the Turks and Caicos Islands, which I had never heard of. I'm looking around, people are going, yeah, I was on a cruise there. I stopped there. Yes, I can see. Or, um, the only reason I'd heard of it is you're a sports guy. Um, and I was never interested in football terribly much growing up. It was my family's religion, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Don't forgive me. There's always someone. You know, you could do that. My, my cousin sent a very funny message the other day. You could read out at someone's shiver. It doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so-and-so, a lovely man, great-grandchildren. He loved his shul. He was a git and a shimmer. He was an Arsenal supporter. So that somebody at the back of the shiver house will go, boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's true. Um, <laughs> someone for Bisson over there. Yeah, what can I tell you? Um, Anyway, so I didn't know where the Turks and Caicos Islands was. Right. Uh, the Foreign Office had asked me to uh, be part of the team to build a case out there. The government had been suspended for corruption. It was one of the old pink bits, one of the old um, parts of empire which still exists um, that we still have de facto governance of. They'd been suspended, and I went to uh, effectively prosecute their ex-government. But after the initial flush of how fabulous it was, and only knowing the place because I yeah. kept meticulous records of Miss World... And sort of knew, knew that it was somewhere <laughs> in the Caribbean. It's um, nice, though. Uh, yeah. it, well, it, for five minutes, it's yeah. nice. And yeah. then it's enough already. So um, yeah. I started writing scripts. And most of my friends from university were actors. So that's uh, another way of saying they're mostly unemployed. <laughs> Just for, it's that terrible thing. You know, you're going to be an actor. What else are you going to do? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so I was going to bring back Crown Court with friends. Um, that show that most of you are too young to remember. The people nodding and nodding. Yeah, maybe sort of. Um, and it was, that was the idea, to bring us a real, real drama on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. And we went to flog it. I knew nothing about TV. I'd come back to defend in a case in Croydon. Um, that'll depress you. Anyone from Croydon? No? No? Baruch Hashem. Doubtless. That's what I have to say to you. Doubtless. Oh, no offence, but there's that lovely poem, you know, Come Happy Bombs and Rain on Slough, John Betjeman. It's because nothing rhymed with Croydon, I'm confident, at the time. <laughs> but I'd... Um, if I get cancelled because I'm Gazid, what can I tell you? The, not um, here. Not, not here, here, you won't. No, but the reality is that um, I'd gone from defending in cases where I had a profound belief in what I was doing, and you needed to have that investment. You know, job doesn't have to be perfect 
but you need to believe that what you're doing matters, that it has integrity and value. And especially where you feel depleted, where you're working 100 hours a week, it doesn't have to be great, yeah. but you get up in the morning, it's going to replenish that currency yes. you've spent. And having only defended and then gone to build a case and worked alongside international prosecutors, um, coming back to defend, I found impossible. So I was getting pretty depressed pretty yeah. fast, actually. And around that time, um, I went to see this woman. I didn't know who she was. I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I was with a group of people to sell this idea. And she looked at the script really intently. And um, she'd read it. And um, I can't remember her precise words, but I think they were variations on a theme, Johnny, of this is the worst thing I've ever read. <laughs> uh, she sort of, the words used before, she gave her sort of aggressively undivided indifference. Right. She said it was, I went back to Croydon and she had written these, um, she describes them as chick lit novels. So I thought, what an opportunity to read her work, you know. She says that mine has the cultural range of an airline salad. Let's see. As my grandma would say, cuck him and let me have a look, you know. <laughs> so I had a read of her books. They were brilliant. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of the biology was news to me. It's all I have to say. Just because you read the brochure doesn't mean you're going on the package tour. I was... Uh, <laughs> It was sort of like reading a biological version of Talmud. I needed to go to various different sources. <laughs> Get back to court from Croydon and sent her a message. And she said, yes, I thought your script was terrible, but it'd be really interesting for you to go meet this guy who wants to make a court show. Right. Um, because she was in television, some people uh, will know other people who work in television here, full of Bubba Masters. You can't rely on anything they say. Absolutely not. You know, it's like a state agent's on steroids. That's the type of thing. So I didn't trust anything they had to say. And then normally from the germ of an idea, if somebody's not on television to put them on, it's year, two yeah. years as they focus group you and they determine whether you're, it's going to work. She just was this maverick um, senior commissioner called Helen Warner. And she decided to put it on television. Um, and I didn't believe this was happening. And I took a brief in Jersey. Uh, there was a Jersey independent care inquiry where it was to... Uh, tragically to, about historic child abuse there. And because there's no separation between the legislative and the prosecutorial branches of government, in other words, prosecutors and the government all in the same building, they were worried that the inquiry wouldn't get all of the material. So they appoint special counsel, me, to go and write the policy and make sure that that um, inquiry get all of the material they need. So I flew from this very serious thing over to Manchester to do this thing. Yeah. I didn't believe a word of it. Right. I thought it was all Bubba Masters, all stories. Mm -hmm. I arrive. The next thing I know is a, a court with my name on it. And people look at me, they go, yeah, yeah. And, and the only response I have, it's like when you're in an argument with your partner and you go, look, MS Hashem. Like, this is honest to God really true, happened. right? Yeah. There it was. I walked in. Um, uh, case number one, a woman walks in. She's suing her wedding photographer, which is challenging because <laughs> you have to find language, don't you? you know, when she says that pictures are terrible and you find various adjectives to explain, madam, it looks like you. What can I say? <laughs> and, then, I said, and then she brought her witness. I said, well, thank you. Marvellous. I'm so grateful that you brought uh, your mum to court. I'm really glad she <laughs> took the time. That's my sister. You know, that's... Uh, we all stumble on some unsympathetic lighting was my response. And then case number two, which changed everything, and I suppose it has the element of seriousness, which um, is that um, they're not allowed to talk to me in my ear. So although we're TV, it's shot completely as live. And right. in a day, we might have two cases that are not constructed, they're real, but they might be about things that aren't necessarily the most serious things in the world, you know, goat-eating the contents of a woman's handbag and so on and so forth. But otherwise, it's usually toxic families in real crisis. 
And, um, you know, for years I dealt with cases involving billions, people from London or uh, uh, international organisations and so on and so forth. Um, and as I say, because we are regulating, because these days, if you do know, if you hold yourself out as being real, um, Ofcom do take the trouble of going to check. And I have to give full judgment at the end of a case. You have um, to write those up. Well, I, it's extempore, so I say it as I'm sitting here. I go through the law. I'll know the law and prepare it. But, right. you know, um, it'll sometimes be 20 minutes. I go through the law, sometimes even longer. 20 minutes, even longer. Yeah. How can I tell you? People like are a sitting Beatles in a coma album. at the end of it. But, it's, uh, but it matters that people, that everybody understands the law because it's ours. Anyway, the woman who runs my show um, is from the black country. In fact, not far from where you were born. I'll you know, come and translate. Right, you, yeah. translate. Right, so she was from Birmingham and... Just brilliant, as people there are. They, they call it precisely yeah. as it is. And this second case I had, I said something like this to the litigants. I said, you know, this case is worth um, £150, I think. Chai, and Sybilis. Precisely. The words to that effect. <laughs> that, you know, um, that's not a lot of money. Stopped and paused. And bear in mind, they do dips and they check what's been said and they can't say anything that's going to interfere with the integrity of the judgment. I hear this woman in my ear. <laughs> Do you want to rephrase that? She sounded like a right freaking posh dick. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'll um, translate for you, love, later. <laughs> but from there, I mean, to learn about the real experiences beyond the limits and borders of our communities, one thing. But also, as you described, this thing happening overnight. Yeah. And again, to bring it back to JBD and the work that JBD, we do, JBD does as a community, it's there and present for what happens to people sometimes overnight. And that sense that there I was in this kind of nadir of depression, really thinking about the future of what I was going to do. And then suddenly yes. life has, as we know from our experience in the last two years, this extraordinary enduring capacity to change quite literally in a second. And who or what is there for you at that moment. And sometimes in my case, it was a bit of muzzle, a bit of luck. Yeah, lovely. But also um, what matters when that happens to you is that there are homes, spaces and families like JBD as well. Lovely. I want to expand on that because, uh, and by the way, it's, this is a great advert for my podcast as well because I let my guests talk. Sorry. <laughs> um, tell you, you know, this is what happens when you invite a lawyer to speak. I do, I do by the word. Yeah. Um, but this is, this is a very serious point because, mm. of course, we are living through a pandemic and some of us are staring our career uh, avenues in a cul-de-sac and we have to rethink our ideas. And this was in your mid-30s. Mm -hmm. And you begun not to believe in the things that you were doing and you wanted to find something to move on. And here it was, the right. TV set and off you go. And it's the same for me. I really, really believed in sport for a very long time. I was in sports sponsorship and broadcasting mm -hmm. for 25 years. I'm actually not really in that anymore. And one of the reasons is I found uh, Jewish and Israeli issues on this podcast. And what started as a sort of voluntary hobby is now a voluntary hobby. No, uh, um, I am uh, um, three years later. But it's, it's growing and it's, right. it's a real passion and a real interest. And, you know, one day it will work. And um, it is actually working in terms of massive audience that's growing. And that's it. You do need something of purpose. Yeah to push you forward, to motivate you. I couldn't, people are saying, well, why don't you go back to sport? And I've done a bit on the television at GB News, um, but it's not as exciting as I know. Yeah, um, it is a bit. We don't need to share politics to be friends. You see, we can model exactly, each other. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I only talk about uh, players on the right side rather than the, the, the left wing guys. Um, but but it's, it's actually what you believe in, isn't it? And it, it, that's the purpose. The, the conviction in what you're doing motivates you to move forward. No, no, precisely so. I mean, that's everything, right? Um, whatever it is that you, we do. Um, I mean, there's, 
nowadays, this sort of growing emergence of uh, the thirst for, I mean, people that you may know, Jordan Peterson, for example, is speaking to young men directly, whatever your view of him, I think, whether it's problematic or not, the fundamental message of him, others, faith, communities, charities, is that driving mission to have something that's of value, of lasting value, where you believe that what you do, you describe it as a purpose, but it's actually to be of service to bigger something bigger, larger, and of more value than yourself. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, that you, you get these amazing gifts when you've been on telly. So the um, Holocaust programs you made were yes. examples of that by way of the most extraordinary things, all of which are ridiculously silly, like being able to learn how to dance, for instance. I mean, what a delight that was, <laughs> you know? That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Let's not Absolutely. go mad. Oh, thank you, Grandma. <laughs> so, like we'll so. come to the dancing in a moment. But mm. this is the thing about Jewish organisations. Mm -hmm. I am talking to ambassadors by email. Right. They, I'm telling them who I've interviewed. I'm telling them where we're broadcasting to. I'm telling them how many hundreds of thousands of people are listening. And you know what? They reply and they say, yes, 7.30 p.m. next Wednesday on Zoom, here's my email and phone number. Right. Uh, Jewish society, Israeli society, is flat. Mm. And it's amazing. Um, and that's the most wonderful thing about being able to walk into a shul. You don't know who you're talking to, but they are hoikafenster, a lot of these people, and they help you. That's it. Hoikafenster means snobby. No, high windows, literally high windows. No, but if you call someone uh, if you call someone hoikafenster, do you see so-and-so, she was hoikafenster. Like I don't mean it like My that. bubba would say, like, you know, you she's got snobbery. a thing. She, well, years ago, she, yeah, snobbery. She would go to um, the grounds to see people, mostly Yiddish of whom she snobbery. knew. Um, and she'd come back and she'd say things like, did you see Marjorie's, uh, did you see Marjorie's stone? Gold lettering. Oh, she was hoikafenster in life, you know. Right. That sort of thing. So that's, that's the that's thing about Yiddish. It's got different. Uh, depends which yeah. um, <laughs> which which haim you're from. Which yeah. Um, no high windows. That's what we mean. High window. Yeah. Well, that's how I took it. Ah. Because that's the thing about the Yiddish that I learned. I learned wrong. it through my Viennese grandmother. No, that's different. Yeah. Now the thing about that is I don't know what's Yiddish and what's German. Ah. So when she explained Hoika Fenster to me and she said, "Yeah, this is high windows." Yeah. Okay, high windows. You know, posh. A posh house. I didn't realise it had the texture of snobbery. Yeah. I'll, I'll, can I redact that? You can, yeah, Your it's Honor. fine. I'll, I'll, I'll retract that. Story. That would be quite the Judge Rinder special, the Yiddish special. <laughs> yes. Uh, you, thank you for your submission. <laughs> you got your Yiddish wrong. What could I tell you? Um, although, when I worked in big um, uh, building prosecutions by the end of it, all of the cops I worked with, many of whom were from parts of England, where, you know, there wasn't much Yiddish. By the end of it, there were fluent speakers. <laughs> uh, I once had, in fact, in the Turks and Caicos Islands, we needed to create a way that um, we could find locals a safe capacity to come and give evidence. And so there was a method of doing that. Yes. And, um, you know, various clandestine organisations and so on and so forth. But you needed to make sure that you had some way of filtering what information intelligence came to you. And one day I got a knock at the door. This old cop who policed all grief. They're all called John or Day from the Midlands. You know, for the first five minutes they hated me. Then we really actually fell in a spiritual and a team way quite in love with each other. Knocked at the door one day. He goes, here, I've got someone at the door. That was a special door. I think it's one of those mashegis you've been told. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, who doesn't enjoy when uh, the BBC continuity announces as well? I'm sorry, we've uh, lost contact there with that technical glitch, glitch being a Yiddish word. Oh. Welcome back. Yeah, glitch. Abyssal uh, glitchik. The ice on the ground. It's oh, true. Yeah, it's, it's nice. And there's no snobbery about that, mm. I can assure you. Um, 
And that's the thing about um, being Jewish. And this is the thing that I admire about you. It's very important, I think. Uh, everyone knows you're Jewish, so go out and be Jewish. And uh, right. for many years uh, before, I suppose we call it the Corbyn era, you could go about your secular life and be someone uh, out there in, in sports land or in barrister land being uh, a member of the public. But now you're a Jew. And um, there's, there's quite a lot of that. Uh, some of it's unsaid. Some of it uh, people don't worry about. Uh, but if you wear it with pride, if you wear it uh, yeah. as, as, as something that's positive, if you're an example, mm. I think, then, uh, th then life is better, I think, for everyone around you as well. Yeah, I mean, that's one way of putting it. I, 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 and I, I, I hear you. Um, uh, I don't think it's as bad news as, as, as you do um, or as that sort of idea that now we're more earmarked. I think there's always a responsibility to stand up and be counted and to be proud. Mm. We are less than 300,000. And what we do has the capacity to light up communities. And from to that extent, I think it was really important, something you were talking about earlier, actually, about how we can be purveyors, communicators of the good news of who we yes. are as a Jewish community. And I can tell you some, some, some good news. Um, you know, uh, as you say, I'm not culturally Jewish, I'm religiously Jewish, proudly Jewish. I'm proudly uh, Zionist and talk about it and want to help and encourage especially young people to become proud advocates, I want to teach people how best to advocate on behalf of Israel and to become better hearers, to understand the world more and to be able mm. to tell those good news stories. But just some takeaway, I mean, leaving aside JBD, which is a profoundly good news story, um, the Who Do You Think You Are that I, I did, you know, in that cohort of people, I was the least famous by far. You had Boy George and Olivia Col Coleman, maybe one other person wasn't terribly famous, but the point about it was um, there was about two and a half million people watched the episode before mine. And then my episode got four and a half million viewers on first watch. Yes. And it ended up going up to about seven million on catch up. The um, documentary about um, the Holocaust, which was a, you know, took two years in the making, yes. got in total something like eight and a half million viewers. And what we know from the breakdown, because BBC do this sort of work pretty well, you can really rely on uh, the analysis that they conduct, uh, that had reach into communities where there was none or no engagement with BBC or documentary whatsoever. There was not a peep of anti-Semitism on social media at all in either programme. In other words, there was quite clearly a genuine and authentic national thirst to understand more, to engage. Now, you could see the world through the prism of Twitter and hear the disproportionately dialed up noise of anti-Semitism, and undoubtedly it exists, and undoubtedly that has made it worse, and undoubtedly we need to be constantly on guard as a people. We know how it takes the blink of an eye to go from democracy into human depravity. That's what the story of the Holocaust is, to be sure. But, but at the same time, there are millions of people in our communities of goodwill, of those who want to know more, those who are, without question, disproportionately, overwhelmingly allies. Allies of us as a people, allies of our history. And it's important that we speak up to them. We talk about their heroism. Yes. We talk up yes. about how they can help our communities and how great they are in supporting us, rather than simply having a singular message of oy vey. Thank you.
one of the most powerful advocates, I think, at the 2019, mm -hmm. yes, 2019 general election, mm. was Lord Ian Austin from my part of the world. That's great. And uh, That's great. what an amazing hero he was yeah. uh, to the point where he was so brave, he said, not only am I going to resign, I'm going to tell you to vote for Boris Johnson. Yeah. This is a 35-year dyed-in-the-wool Labour man who has gone to the House of Lords as an independent and he said and I know this of the people of Dudley and the people of the black country and the people of Middle England that you're talking about your friends from Orgreave he said uh, uh, they don't know they don't know the ins and outs they don't know the ins and outs of Jewish history but they do know something's wrong right you know and uh, that that really was a, a very moving thing and your show was, was deeply moving. You gave a cover to many of your ancestors who are no longer living, which is very important. I always think of the people who are raised from their history in the 19th century. They lived short, tough lives. And here they are in the 21st century, just because their great, 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 great grandson or great granddaughter is famous, they are given a cover. They're giving an aliyah mm. uh, to millions of people. I think that's a lovely thing. And Matthew Pinson's related to God. That's a, that was an amazing thing. But the biggest takeaway is Jason Donovan's got a Jewish uh, grandfather. I love that. Who, wouldn't, who knew? Who knew? Who, who knew? Well, we were all Jewish at some point. So yeah, going back on the you know, Adam and Eve. Can I tell you? Um, yeah. Indeed. <laughs> um, so, so, but let me, let me ask, how do these things come about for you on daytime television? You have arrived with that hit show. I remember Graham Norton saying about his Channel 4 show, Never Quit the Hit. Richard and Judy quit ITV, yeah. and um, you know, Richard Maidley's managed to find his career. Judy wants to retire, that's the way it goes, mm -hmm. but never quit the hit. So it's the Judge Rinder, which is the kind of backbone, yeah. and everything comes from that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's popular, it's really unusual. I mean, one of the things is that um, daytime television is ritual. I mean, you'll know because, uh, you know, it's on in the background, and people say, you know, people say, I've watched you for years, and you say, actually, we've only been on since 2014. That's <laughs> why so it's really hard to make a programme like that land. It's part of the kind of emotional way in which people spend a day. And um, so it was very unusual. It was, again, muzzle. It rained on the day that it went out in the middle of August. It was supposed to be in the death slot, as they called, as they called it. And um, it just hit. And because of that, and it's all, as you know, about the ratings and how many people watch from there, um, you get other opportunities. And it's what you make, as you know, yes. of, of those opportunities. And for me, you know, everything I get is so absurd and it's so not real work. I'm literally, I'm so, this is a, the sense of Jewish superstition. I'm, you know, I collect celestial mitigation. I quite literally think, and I was working 100 hours a week, this is not a real job. I'm waiting for the karmic thwack. Chatterville. At some point, I think, oh, something's coming. Because it's, it's just been so um, completely uh, uh, joyous. And it isn't, and I emphasise this, and I feel um, extremely, I suppose, um, sensitive about it, embarrassed, because, uh, as I repeat, trying to explain to someone it's not real work is rather difficult. When I was doing Strictly, the number of people that came up to me and said, oh, you must be working so hard. I go... <laughs> <laughs> you know, there I am. Uh, the idea of phoning one of my colleagues who's about to go up in front of some snaggletooth Wickhamist judge who's got a... Uh, my chambers of human rights chambers has perhaps got a very difficult issue, one of um, really serious public importance. She's got a brief that's covered in sick. Yeah, her kids have been <laughs> up all night. Um, Mitten Drin, she's got to go to, to court. She's done 100-hour weeks. And how are you? She, she tells me this story. And, well, what's going with it? Well, I can't get this cha-cha right. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, oh, and I had this Russian dancer as somebody... She hasn't done uh, another season on Strictly. 
not too much. He's invading the Crimea this winter. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, my thing about that was uh, when I it was a joy because um, I knew I was going to get a Russian dancer. Right. I, I'm a Russianist. I love speaking Russian and learning. I thought brilliant. Uh, I will be in this for three weeks. So I'll be terrible. But at least I'll be able to read um, uh, about Pushkin and Dostoevsky. It'll be marvellous. We'll talk and I'll learn. It'll be fantastic. Anyway, I met her that night. You looked surprised. I'm so surprised. I wasn't surprised. How marvellous. Um, and we went from uh, uh, Elstree, where the studios are, to Islington uh, and passed on the way. I was going to buy her dinner. We we're going to be spend a long time with each other. No chance of the Strictly curse. I then passed. <laughs> um, uh, although, as my bubble would say, from your mouth to God's ears, they were... Um, <laughs> We passed Highgate Cemetery, and uh, I say, uh, oh, your nose buried, it's my moment. Well, yeah, all right. I say, say, who's buried? Karl Marx. So she looks at me, she says, he is a singer? That was the end end of our our chat. But it wasn't like real work. And and so they put the camera in your face, so they go, how does it feel to go out in front of 14, more that time, 12 12 million people? and, and, and make a fool of yourself in front of the public. And the answer was, you know what, no one died. No one died. I was like, this is fantastic. Yes. It did get a bit weird. I mean, there were moments, as it, uh, it was, you know, your uh, beautiful wife over there is from Strasbourg. Um, and um, I worked there for a short period of time in various other places. And there was a moment where I was wearing lederhosen, about to do, I know, right, the irony. <laughs> Although I was looking back we'll at Google my... We'll Google that later, right? Right, but I was looking at my bar mitzvah photos. I have to say, I did look like a little Von Trapp, you know. <laughs> there was kind of audible sigh of relief as I sort of yes. broke into, uh, into the cedra, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, Boris Becker walked past whilst I was wearing lederhosen. He goes, I was wearing that last week. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, four and a half years ago, less than that, if it's three and a half years ago, um, I was in The Hague applying for an international extradition warrant um, for the brother of the ex-prime minister of a country. I'm wearing lederhosen. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. no one died. I mean, Because know. television provides you with platforms and new opportunities, exactly. not platform shoes. It's been a real gift. So I've been able to work across the channels, which is unusual. Yes. As you say, I mean, Judge Rinder, uh, we've not been able to make for about 18 months because they've got so many uh, repeats that they put on over and over again. Right. Did I get a good deal? No. I mean, I see you looking out at me. You know, there's a thing people do at the charity event because um, Judge Judy is the highest paid person on television, right? Right. I mean, and you're not the second highest. Not even vaguely. No, no. But Ruch Hashem, I should be five pounds behind her. But when you do a charity event, especially where it's, let's call it what it is, you know, it's Mishpocha and you think, well, and it's for your dad. It's Judge Judy. Why can't he buy his own building? He can't look after his own. You know, Um, the reality is that we've not been able to make uh, Judge Rinder because of COVID because we book uh, the cases very late, as you right. can imagine, and you know the rules on television are make it impossible. Um, but I do this chat show on Channel 4. Again, it's very difficult because of audiences. That yeah. probably will come back. Um, but on BBC, it's mainly these documentaries, documentaries about crime, communicating the law so that we share an understanding of our law, which really matters. Uh, but exactly as you say, being able to use that platform to tell stories... Yes. And that's an incredibly effective way that we can change hearts and minds. And you know, you're talking about Israel. I'll touch on that advocacy a little yes, bit. Yes, I which want is, to talk about that. Yeah, this way. I mean, it, it, as we approach, how do we approach anti-Semitism, however it emerges? That could come perhaps in the guise of um, anti-Israel sentiment. It very rarely these days appears in the most 
obvious forms. You've experienced it to mm -hmm. a significant I extent have, yes. and, and, and had to respond. Um, but how we can become effective advocates is, th is in three ways, and I'm certain of it. And this is largely exacerbated by social media. People don't have the capacity to listen anymore. They uh, live in a world of echo chambers, as you'll be aware. So your view gets validated by immediately by um, whomever you're talking to on social media, which wildly, disproportionately curates and informs and shapes a political debate. It represents a tiny portion of the population, but all of the advisors to the politicians are on Twitter. And there is a, a relationship between that machine and the advice the politician gets, because um, as you'll know, if any of you are on those platforms, every time somebody approves of what you say, they get a little heart-like. And that has a, a, a really consequent mental effect. You get a little microdose of serotonin. Yeah. It's not just, not just validation, it's infinitely more. Politicians who are just human beings, mostly, may have not eaten with one, um, are, are receiving and experiencing the same thing. Now, one of the consequences, people no longer listen with the logical cortex of their brain. And anybody that um, has a worldview, especially one that's been um, darkly abducted or possessed of a hatred, it's very difficult to talk them out of that or of a worldview that's been presented through a very simplistic way, yes. big versus small, the developed world versus the small world. You know, tyranny is a deliberate removal of nuance, right? And so in those circumstances, because they're not listening logically, there's no point when you're met. I, there's a wonderful uh, group of women uh, at the corner on table nine who are activists and go out regularly to campaign. <laughs> and, um, and what they'll know is that very often, uh, you're not going to change minds by deploying the facts. Because when you do, when somebody's listening with the emotional part of their brain, um, that emotional part of their brain is where their identity is governed. And so it feels immediately threatening when you say what you're saying is wrong. It, it, it's absolutely yeah. crushing to somebody's identity. So first thing is to go, I hear what you say. And to actually take the trouble more than to virtue signal but to listen to the points they're making. I've heard what you said. Secondly, the throat clearing, which is a very important one. It's a central one, which is to deploy the facts. Your facts are wrong because of one, two, three, and four. Here's why they're wrong. But thirdly, to have a quality example. Mm -hmm. Come back to that. Could be JBD. It's a great one. In Israel, it could be Mogin David Adam, for example. Yes. Any number yes. of stories could be about the LGBT community in um, Israel. It could be that the man who sentenced the prime minister to prison um, a, a assistant uh, chief justice of the court of Israel is not a Jewish man. He's an Israeli Arab. Yes. It, it could be um, because you work for one of the human rights organizations in that country. It could be because of the art, the food, the cotton, you name it. Yes, exactly. But those are the ways that we can become effective communicators. And what television can do, and what broadcasting has, the immense and I think limitless capacity for is for this ability that we have amongst each other to tell these stories yes. and to get out of the way. And so because of that, and because of the success of the programs that we've made, and I make my hope in a, in a really honest way, um, we've been able to get some more commissions, which aren't yet announced, <laughs> okay. but um, hopefully um, will be very significant. Nearly prize that one out of Baruch Hashem. And, and Baruch Hashem, that'd be wonderful. And, yeah. and, and on that subject, yeah. um, take some when we hear um, about anti-racism and we hear about anti-Semitism as part of anti-racist rhetoric, uh, you feel 
at the instance of hearing how uh, I deplore uh, anti-Semitism and all other forms of racism, you feel discomfort, and then you think, hang on a moment. There's a, there's a part of the identity which they're asking you to disavow so that um, they're happy for you to be a Jew as long as you don't support Israel. There is part of that discourse, and that is something mm. we have to push through. And, and, and on the radio Maybe, last night, I used, <laughs> I used a good news yeah. story about Israel and Bahrain. I, I got my That's friend great. James Marlowe on, um, on to talk radio last night to talk about good news uh, in the Middle East. Apropos, absolutely nothing, no mention of Hezbollah and Hamas and Palestinian and Syria and, and Iran, nothing to do with that. But what was going on with, with flights from Jordan and um, from Manama to Israel, uh, and it's those things um, that we, we don't need to ever fear that we have to, we, I would never do it and you would never do it and mm -hmm. probably no one in here would ever do it, disavow themselves um, of support for, for Israel in that Well, case. I mean, it's a slightly different discussion for I mean, you know, tonight, but I, uh, you know, I think uh, that we're uh, a robust, proud uh, Jewish community. Of course, it yeah. needs to be constantly vigilant to be sure, and we need to be great advocates and we are rightly and acutely sensitive. Um, uh, but I also think that we need to deploy our emotional capital very carefully. And, you know, this, uh, make sure that even where there are people amongst our communities who disagree with us, our job is to win their hearts and minds as far as we can, uh, as opposed to using the same anger, rage, violence, and so on and so forth towards those people who perhaps don't feel the same as we do. I do think it is possible, for instance, for you to be Jewish and have a, a, a view about Israel which doesn't coincide with mine. My job in the circumstances is to persuade you why you're wrong and to make sure that the groundswell, the overwhelming majority of our community and the communities beyond our tiny one agrees with me. And we have this amazing platform to be able to do it. And um, television and all of these things are an amazing mechanism of persuasion. So. On that on that point about we are being, we are a robust and strong community. Uh, I'm about to release a podcast with His Excellency Michael Oren, the oh, wow. former ambassador uh, to the United States from Israel, who was the ambassador in Washington between 2009 and 2013, which coincided with the election of Benjamin Netanyahu and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And his book um, is about... Uh, it's called Ally and about the divide between, crossing the divide between the United States and Israel. And what I wanted to say to you was a positive message here. Ah, okay. Right, and that is... Where can we agree? There you are. No, we're going yeah. to agree here. Yeah. Because that, there, is, there, is about, there is a consensus uh, in what I talk about. Yeah. There's always that. And Michael Oren praised the Anglo-Jewish community for its uh, exceptionally robust approach to the David Miller situation yes. at Bristol University. Mm. And he said to me, we admire the Anglo-Jury yeah. uh, community model, as he called it, because, because in America, David Miller would still have his job because in the United States, we cannot agree about what anti-Semitism is. On one side, there'd be the Anglo-Jewish view right. uh, that, yes, uh, ending Zionism and talking about uh, chicken soup as a, as a conspiracy theory inside mosques is something that we should talk about. And then there's a significant number from perhaps the J Street crew which would say, well, this is Israel having had it coming to them all the time. And so in America, uh, there is not a consensus on agreement, but here in you know, this country, there very much is. And uh, I think that's a real strength that we've got in the British community. I do. 
Uh, I agree with that part of it, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. And actually, uh, that litigation, that was how lawyers um, had the capacity to change things, talking about Gideon Falter. So, yes. you know, um, the campaign against Anderson, who, are, who is a, a, a light amongst us, um, he's an extraordinary person, um, and his work is completely invaluable. And I, uh, you know, talk about a person that is a missionary. He, the campaign for anti-Semitism that uses all of the legal tools that are disposable to, to make significant change. And um, what he did by using some of the best uh, lawyers in the country was making to, to, to make sure that they were held to legal account and didn't let go, and that was the response. And actually, it demonstrates how proudly our rule of law does work if you have the best people to pull the levers. And uh, through Gideon and his incredible network, that demonstrates we do. It really so was it's really great. incredible. Yeah. And we do have... Uh, a slightly tighter consensus here in this yeah. country. And there we are. We've got people from Essex. They wanted to know about, you know, Strictly, about the GOAT, about Michael McIntyre, Mittendrin. Okay, there. Should the, we do a couple of questions from the audience? Yeah. Who's got a question for, uh, for Rob? Because he's not answered every single question. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Um, what's next? Oh, hello. Oh, good. Yeah. We've got a microphone. Um, Excellent. Hello, what's next for you, Rob? Lots of other fun things along the way. Hopefully I won't get woken up by Michael McIntyre. Who knows? <laughs> um, oh, the worst thing was I, you know, I thought, you saw, I thought it was my Auntie Adele in the middle of the night. I thought, what's going on? Um, but yeah, <laughs> there's that. And um, Have you started oh, I'm also going to America uh, in a couple of weeks to make uh, Judge Rinder for Bravo. Now, whether it works or not, we'll see. They don't really understand court. I keep getting messages. In America, it's impossible to have a bad meeting. Talk about people that blow smoke up your tuchus, right? You need yeah, to, yeah, yeah. everyone, oh, you're so amazing. You're so, oh, we love you. We're like, well, what? Yeah, right, you know. Um, <laughs> but they, I keep having these meetings where they don't understand anything to do with court. So um, that we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm supposed to go there next week. Um, and honestly, we, well, all I can say is, JBD, if it goes well, um, I really hope it goes well, because if it's Judge Judy, we don't need to have another one of these. Yeah. <laughs> 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 there's, there's, there's my pledge. So pray, you know, whatever. Part of my celestial mitigation, you know, I, the real thing I'm most proud of is having set five couples up. And I do that because I'm collecting that currency in the event that there yes. is a Hashem and she's sitting there. Yes. And uh, I, love the, I love the guilt associated with celestial mitigation because... It's Jewish. Those, yeah, well, I was going to say Noel Edmonds, who's not Jewish, calls it cosmic ordering. Well, there you are. I mean, I've so. never spoken to Noel, but maybe. Because the idea of um, finding myself in Olam Abor, whatever you're going to call it, and my muzzle... I'll be behind some, you know, perfect kind of tzaddik who's elbowed to a cloud with a sea view. So I've got to have something to say, right? Yes. So my thing is, yes. I've set five couples up. Yes. So anybody, especially if there's plenty of women, by the way, just saying, if you know anybody, I need new stock. Just <laughs> <laughs> a few lovely That's lovely. And that is a perfect way to round off this part of the conversation <laughs> with Rob Rinder. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's lovely. Thank you so much. I'm just going to... Yeah, you're going to... Um, now to the lecture. Now to the... Oh, this is where I'm more comfortable. Um, I wanted very briefly to uh, talk to you from here. Um, excuse me. Um, and I'm also speaking to everybody who's at home as well as uh, in the room. Um, um, earlier on, you heard me describe um, who we are here as Mishpocha, as family. And um, that is... 
who we are and, and what JBD is. It has all, all of the hallmarks of a family, a sense of responsibility towards one another, a sense of community, a sense of derech and covered respect, and above all else, the most important thing that those who experience not suffering but have a change in their life deserve, deserve the absolute greatest human dignity we can gift them as a community. Um, for most people who use JBD, as you heard earlier, um, it happened much like life happens to us and we'll reflect on uh, in the last two years because life can change overnight, either because of an accident, because of a sudden diagnosis. Or in my dad's case, where an illness comes and you're slowly presented by a reality that he can no longer live without being part of an inclusive community where he can live independently, but above all else, in Derek Heretz, in sanctuary and in safety. Um, it just occurred to me, honestly, before I came in, I was reading something that um, the, it's not Shabbat, but the Sedra this week, whatever your Jewish complexion, um, was the Sedra of Noah. Um, and I was reflecting on that before I stood up to think that what happened when uh, our dad was diagnosed felt a bit like a deluge, almost as if all of a sudden you find yourself quite literally drowning in that flood and looking, swimming around to find a mountain, to find Ararat. And that was what Jewish, blind and disabled meant for us, for all of us, for my dad and for me and for all of our family. It was precisely that. It was dry land. JBD were, they are uh, the light in the darkness. They are... Um, the example that we reach to when we answer the question, who are we as a people and as a, a community? Now, the thing is, just to be clear about why you're here tonight, of course, there's an ask, but just thinking about the seven homes and building two more, 75%, um, the overwhelming majority of people who live in these communities, these homes, these places of Ruach, spirit of, of Simcha, um, can't afford to pay to be there. The services that are provided are um, extraordinary. And I use the word extraordinary because I've had the chance to go the length and the breadth of this country. And from Essex to um, the various homes in North London, there is no better quality care, no better community Every service is provided to the absolute best that it possibly could be. None of that can be done um, without the funding that uh, we need. And when I ask that question of you, it, it isn't just a question about funding for individuals who can't afford it. There's something else. It's about a relationship we have as individuals that we may not be necessarily in need of this service today, but reflecting on what happens to us, to our families, when we may all of a sudden need that service tomorrow. And what type of place, what type of home, 
What type of mountain would we want our family to be on? We'd want to make sure that we give, as used the word before, the cover, the respect, the derech the love, the passion, the family environment that could be provided that perhaps when somebody has a complex cognition like dementia, we're not able to provide. JBD is there. It is that light. Um, just to give you a, a sense of it, um, this is what we need this year. Um, we need to raise uh, an additional three million pounds uh, to complete the planned works on the Mill Hill East project. And that's located, as you'll know, in the heart of this growing community in the Mill Hill East. Um, uh, 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 there are, I think, 31 and two bed flats to people who are struggling to live in accommodation. That is currently totally unsuitable to their needs. You can support us or by donating online or via the post or uh, via phone. Um, you know, uh, as I was looking at our wonderful chief executive, um, she's written down, I can only speak from the heart. And it's true. Um, um, this is personal to me. Uh, I've had the privilege and ongoing gift to um, give a platform to large charities. Uh, but the most important thing that one can do is to elevate smaller charities like this that otherwise don't get the chance, uh, are often crowded out by uh, the bigger organisations, but do this magical work and deliver it with passion, with respect, and with the type of professionalism that represents the very best of any service that we can offer. And it's wrapped up, it's threads wrapped up in a tapestry that cloaks itself in something even more magical, which is that it's not just tzedakah, it's not just giving charity. JBD is a broad family and it's something, when you're thinking about what you can give, it's something that represents um, us as a community and as a family. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.